Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere And each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Blog Talk Radio. The opinions and views expressed by the host and guest are not necessarily the views and opinions of the Blake Radio Network. Broadcasting, broadcasting, broadcasting to the world, broadcasting to the world, to the world, to the world, spreading the news and information. BlakeRadio.com, music for your mind, body, and soul. Talk radio at its best. You're listening to Ring. Dr. Jennifer Daniels, and welcome to Healing with Dr. Daniels. And you are listening to the Lake Radio Network, Rainbow Soul. And today's topic is doctors blame themselves for fetal care. Shocking. Well, if doctors are the cause of futile care, then why don't they just stop? So today we're going to take a look at this, um, an article which your doctor received in his inbox, combined with my experiences firsthand, what I saw, I'm going to share with you today, see if we can't sort this out and figure out what can be done to stop feudal care or if it's already being done. And uh, by the way, so what's, uh, what's feudal care anyway? Now, you have to get this, that futile care is actually defined by the medical industrial complex itself. This is, uh, this is absolutely shocking. Futile care is actually a category of care delineated by the medical industrial complex. Well, let's take a look at the dictionary. I like that. Take a look at the dictionary. Let's see what Webster says or the thesaurus. Futile is hopeless, pointless, ineffective, useless, worthless, unneeded, or valueless. So if the care a person receives fits any of these categories, then it is futile care. For example, if a person receives surgery that was not necessary, then that is futile care. I just want this to be clear. We're not necessarily referring to end-of-life care. We're referring to any care that fits any one of these definitions, hopeless, pointless, ineffective, useless, worthless, unneeded, and valueless, of no value. Okay, so now that we know what futile is, let's see what the medical industrial complex itself says. This was published in Medscape Family Medicine, and let's see if they have a date on it, June 17, 2016. Yes, I tried to stay a little bit current. All right, and so... These are doctors talking to uh, Reuters Health. Reuters, Health, Reuters is a uh, syndicated news outlet, which means they share information with uh, other people, including non-doctors. At any rate. So, 
this is this is their excuse. So Dr. S. Z. Zumalowitz says, we don't know how to manage or negotiate it. It is easier behind the scenes. Get this, this is important. Behind the scenes means out of earshot of patients to complain that a treatment may be inappropriate. But we haven't taken a step back to think if we are providing care that furthers a patient's goals. Hmm. This doctor says he and many other physicians prefer to assess treatment in terms of benefit rather than futility. Now, this is an important concept because if you evaluate a service in terms of benefit, you can postulate that it may have the benefit of 0.0001. So that is a measurable benefit. However, the benefit is so minuscule that it might be, as a practical matter, futile. And so if all you measure about a medical intervention is the benefit, then pretty much any medical intervention will not be deemed as futile. Whereas on the other hand, if you measure futility, which means given this intervention, what percent of people who receive the intervention were not benefited by it? Then if you measure futility, that can get pretty darn large, like 99.999%. And so the medical industrial complex has chosen instead to measure benefit. In fact, I can recall sitting in medical school class, the actual debate that if one in one million person, if only one person in a million who receives this procedure is going to benefit from it, then we should proceed. We should give this patient every chance, even, of course, the one in one million long shot. Hmm. And so uh, what this doctor says, it comes down to what the patient values. And it's very hard to discuss what we think the patient values if we haven't talked about it, he says. Of course, you talk about it, but the question is, who do you talk about it with? Do you talk to the patient? It's a pretty sticky matter. I know I was, uh, this is after I left medical school, and when I was under investigation by the state medical board, I was talking to another doctor who I thought was reasonable, and I shared with him the details of my case, and he said to me, what, what, you gave the patient a choice? That should never be done. Never be done. I can see why the state is angered. I was stunned. So in a climate of practice where it's not okay for a doctor to take the patient's wishes into account and give the patient a choice, it's difficult to say that you have to discuss uh, what the patient values. In other words, what is the point of the discussion if you're not allowed to give the patient a choice? But let's go. Let's see what they say. It's very hard to discuss what we think the patient values if we haven't talked about it. And another doctor in Loyola University, a bioethicist, sees young physicians struggle with these discussions. Dr. Parisi, who was not involved in the study, was not surprised that 44% of doctors cited inexperience with death and dying. As a member of his hospital's ethics committee, Dr. Parisi meets monthly with medical trainees. That would be medical students or residents. They feel pressure on them to comply with inappropriate treatment. I'll repeat that. They feel pressure on themselves to comply with inappropriate treatment. Just who do you think might be pressuring a medical student or a resident to comply with inappropriate treatment? Well, a senior physician, of course. And so literally, inappropriate, futile treatment, the instruction of it, the teaching of it, is actually insinuated in and incorporated into the very education of every physician. And these residents don't know how to address it in an appropriate way, he said. And, again, from my experience, I can tell you, we were told exactly how to address it. When I became an intern, the very first day, they sat us down and said, it is not your job to save the patient's life. If you don't agree with something a senior doctor is doing, do not in any way interrupt his activities 
or attempt to restrain him or even speak out. Instead, bring your concerns to the hospital administration. Of course, they didn't give us any name to contact or the hours where such information would be received. So, of course, that was a subtle way of saying, shut up. (laughs) So to suggest that uh, these residents and medical students don't know how to address these things in an appropriate way, they know how to, they've been told. This is, yeah, you're here to learn. Be quiet and watch. Okay. 30% of the Australian doctors, this is in Australia, apparently, said they or their colleagues had provided futile treatment. Okay, let's go back. What is futile? It is hopeless, pointless, ineffective, useless, worthless, unneeded, and valueless treatment. And what was their excuse? Due to worries about legal consequences. Hmm. The factor looms even larger in the United States, according to Dr. Pope, director of the Health Law Institute at Mitchell uh, School of Law in St. Paul, Minnesota. Researchers don't frame the issue in terms of patient safety, but that is a big implication of this study, who tracks the issue on its medical futility blog. Now, obviously, if the medical treatment is futile, in other words, hopeless, pointless, ineffective, useless, worthless, unneeded, and valueless, then all the patient can experience from it is harm, side effects. Right. So, Dr. Pope urges doctors to present medical options in even-handed ways. Now, they've done studies. When you present to a patient the consequences of the choice in front of him in the same terms, in the same understanding and depth that, say, a medical student might hear it in medical school or a senior attending might understand it, in 65% of cases, the care is refused. So if you say to a patient exactly what the demerits are, the side effects, the probability that it won't work, the probability of permanent damage or probability of death, most people, 65%, will actually refuse the therapy. So it's very obvious that if someone really wants to reduce health care costs, all they have to do is give full disclosure and informed consent. But the problem is, People in charge, that would be hospitals and insurance companies and drug companies, they want to control what and when gets refused and how. And that is how their profits are maximized. So if patients decided what to refuse and when and cut back by 65%, that would be absolutely devastating for pretty much every branch of healthcare. And so... Dr. Pope says doctors need to present medical options in even-handed ways. And that's a pretty vague uh, way of saying that doctors need to present, present medical options in a way so as to please some goal or objective not yet stated. Okay. So if physicians are too aggressive, families are going to fall in line, he told Reuters. In other words, if the physicians are giving lots of futile, which is hopeless, pointless, ineffective, useless, worthless, unneeded, valueless care, the families are going to go along with it. Why? Because the family members have been propagandized to equate medical intervention with caring and to equate permitting their loved one to be tortured, mutilated, or maybe even killed as their expression of caring. And it's because of this propaganda cultural bias that the next sentence may be the case. It's emotionally hard for families to pass up what doctors say is a reasonable option. If they knew the real risks, benefits, and alternatives, they might not pick the treatment they are receiving. And again, it's actually been research (laughs) indicating Uh, that that is the case, that um, when given, we'll just call uh, full disclosure, uh, most patients themselves refuse care. And so doctors who were asked about causes of inappropriate care at the end of life didn't have to look far to place blame. 
they blamed themselves. This is very interesting for a doctor to blame himself for end-of-life care because if the doctor is in a hospital setting, the protocols are very clear, and deviation from the protocol is severe. And um, now with electronic records, it's even swift. But even in dark ages, when I practiced back in the 90s, if a patient was in what we call a high-cost portion of their medical care, in other words, they had already received, say, $20,000 or $30,000 of care, literally the accounting department was reviewing their chart every single day. And contact was made with the attending doctor several times a week. So um, the, uh, the idea that a doctor is in charge of this futile care is almost laughable. But they've got the doctor saying, mea culpa, my fault. So Australian researchers interviewed 96 physicians from 10 medical specialties. And I think this is very similar in the United States too. And asked them to describe situations when patients received end-of-life care that the doctors felt was inappropriate. Inappropriate is a euphemism here for futile. Futile medical treatment at the end of life has been shown to harm patients, causes moral distress to clinicians, and wastes scarce resources, as the researchers note May 17th in the Journal of Medical Ethics. Now, there's no evidence that these resources are scarce. I mean, you've got the CAT scan, you've got the PET scan, the MRI scanner sitting there, not being used. you know, these are resources that if they don't get used right now, um, you know, you can't use them twice tomorrow. So in other words, if a, if a MRI scanner is only available for eight hours a day and you don't use one of those hours of availability on Monday, you don't have, say, 16 hours of availability on Tuesday to use up. So when we think about it, what this person saying is absolutely false. In other words, if a hospital has an empty bed in the intensive care unit, of course it's better to fill it. It's not a scarce resource. The bed's available. If the hospital has an MRI scanner and there's an hour uh, open on the schedule, might as well take an end-of-life person and put them in the scanner and charge for it. So it turns out that this concept of scarce resources is... Uh, not quite an accurate reflection of the uh, real case. Okay. But 96% of physicians pointed to themselves or doctor-related factors as the main drivers of futile treatment. Now, for a doctor to point to himself as the main driver of futile treatment is a real head-scratcher. I'll tell you why. When I was in medical school, the senior physician said, ask the class, all medical students, 162 of us, how do you know when a medical treatment is obsolete? How do you know that it's no longer appropriate to use a particular medical therapy? So we were thinking, you know, someone raised their hand, well, you know, you read in a medical journal that it's not needed anymore, and someone else said something else. He said, no, no, no. A medical therapy is not to be used when insurance companies no longer pay for them. So if the insurance company no longer pays for it, then that makes the procedure obsolete. And so with that criteria, and this is taught in medical school, I know because I was sitting in medical school class, then the doctor is not the driver. Obviously, the insurance company is the driver. The insurance company decides what they're going to pay for, and guess what? By golly, that's what the patient gets, uh, no matter what the scientific literature may or may not say. Okay, so they said the main drivers of fetal treatment, poor communication, emotional attachment to patients, and aversion to death were also among the causes they cited. Now, just to be be clear about this, we know that 25% of patients admitted to the hospital suffer harm as a result of being admitted to the hospital. And a lot of times the doctors have an incredible investment in doing even more to show that they did everything that could be done and to mitigate uh, the culpability or blame for that first harm. Unfortunately, it becomes a slippery slope, uh, descending, or they say devolving, into the intensive care unit and even death. So 
Uh, as far as emotional attachment to patients, I can tell you, uh, I was a private practice physician, and I was definitely emotionally attached to my patients, and I did not like to see them tortured. And so I would talk to them in the office and get this straight, like, hey, a lot of care in the hospital is going to make you very uncomfortable and may not, will likely not be of any medical benefit to you. What's the game plan? And so if you care about somebody emotionally attached to, say, a patient, then you'd want to tell them the truth about these interventions that will torture them, cause them pain, and not benefit them. But what they're really saying, they say emotional attachment here, but it's really a financial attachment, the desire to bill and bill and bill and bill and maximize billing. But if you're emotionally attached to someone, you definitely don't want to see them suffer, and you don't want to see them tortured for something that you know is not going to benefit them. And, of course, an aversion to death. Yes, malpractice settlements when a person dies are pretty steep. <coughs> okay. So they also said patient-related factors were important, too. 91% of the doctors cited reasons such as family or patient requests for treatment. Prognostic uncertainty, in other words, they didn't know how things might turn out, and not knowing the patient's wishes as contributors to inappropriate care. And again, the problem with inappropriate or futile care is if you tell a patient when he is receiving futile care, a lot of the care that is received, not even necessarily at the end of life, but period, will simply be refused. And if you think back, again, very important piece of information, 50% of everything doctors are taught in medical school is absolutely flat out false. And as time goes on, every four years, another 50% becomes false. And of course, the doctors update their knowledge from the same pool of knowledge that's 50% false. So the doctor's accuracy uh, in terms of care can be expected to be no more, in fact, a lot less than 50% of what the doctor recommends is going to be uh, futile. So most of what the doctor recommends is going to be futile care just because of the database being inaccurate. So the take-home message for patients and families is to have the conversation about what they want and don't want to have at the end of life, said study leader. Doctors' natural tendency is to treat in this way and to take another path requires one or more conversations with the patient and family. Such conversations are difficult, and doctors are time poor. Most doctors don't have time. Now, again, this kind of glosses over the reality that now, patients are being treated by one doctor, and then boom, when they enter the hospital, another doctor takes over. So having all these conversations with your patients is actually irrelevant, because when the patient enters the hospital, the doctor taking care of them is not the one who had all these conversations with them. Of course, the 70% of the surveyed doctors also cited hospital-related causes, uh-huh, such as specializations medical hierarchy, and time pressure as factors in futile care. So let's examine that. Medical hierarchy. In other words, they don't have the authority to say no. Someone further up the line has said this futile care will be provided. And so this is a very good trick to get doctors to blame themselves for futile care that they don't have the power to stop or refuse to give. And then specializations, this is interesting. So, for example, if you have a cardiologist and you have a catheterization lab in the, hosp- in the hospital, then that catheterization lab needs to be kept occupied to keep revenues up. And so these specialists, each uh, responsible for generating revenue for certain areas of the hospital, are going to be much more aggressive in providing futile care. So I say it is not a matter of one doctor stepping back and considering the overall health of the patient. That's true. There are many specialists involved, each focused on a particular organ. And what they don't say is each focused on a particular stream of income. Yeah. And that's really 
where you get the very, very sticky. So once you get into the hospital, you have many specialists involved, each focused on a different cash flow. The narrow focus of the individual specialist can make it difficult to coordinate a patient's care. In other words, it's difficult to stop care when care is no longer needed, or when it's obviously futile. So roughly one-fourth of physicians said aggressive treatments are hard to stop once started, and that's true, because there's always an aggressive specialist in the crowd who's got bills to pay. The difficulty of withdrawing treatment is a challenge that's all too common, says a palliative care physician at Northwestern Hospital in Chicago. Dr. Schmolowitz, who was not associated with the study, added the doctor's natural aversion to conflict complicates the issue further. I bet you guys didn't know that. You both said that doctors are averse to conflict. Absolutely. The whole education that doctors get from K through 12, undergraduate degree and medical school, focuses on the doctor being docile and amicable. Any individual with a history of having lost his temper at any one point uh, during this uh, 20-year journey uh, is called out. And so doctors are docile and obedient, not so much by nature, but by selection. So what's going on here? How come all this focus on uh, futile care? Well, as always, there's a story, and, well, then there's the story behind the story. And so um, here's the problem. This futile care, which, you know, let's make it clear, there's no doubt about it. Everyone agrees the care is futile. And so this is care that is hopeless, pointless, ineffective, useless, worthless, unneeded, and valueless. Okay? So this is no doubt about it. Consensus, this is the care we're talking about. Um, it's shocking to me that anyone would say they don't know why the care is being given. So uh, let me help you with this. So the doctor experienced in hospital care, I have seen this. When the hospital is determined that the patient is not able to pay and the insurance is not paying, the patient cannot even get an aspirin. The doctor can't even get time in the operating room. Uh, the nurse can't even order an instrument to the floor. None of the doctor's orders are carried out for that patient. And I've seen this happen. And the law is very clear. There is no obligation to provide uncompensated care. So the first reason that this futile care is provided is that it's paid for. Now, hospitals are so averse to providing free health care that the federal government cannot even bribe them to do it. How do I know this? In 1952, the U.S. government using taxpayer dollars, built hospitals all across the nation. It's like a gift, just boom, paid to have all these hospitals built. They only asked that the hospitals give free care over time that is equal in dollar amount to what the government spent to build the hospital. Now, remember the year 1952. This is 2016, and in 37 of 50 states, there are still hospitals that 64 years later have not given enough free care to equal that interest-free debt, to equal the amount the government gave them in 1952. Now, it's safe to say then that hospitals do not give feudal care for free. That's not, they don't do that. So the first reason they get it, they get paid for it. Now let's take a look at drug companies. Drug companies are so averse to giving free drugs. They give free samples, but they refuse to allow a doctor to add patients to the patient assistant program if the dollar amount of free medicine received by patients that that particular doctor refers to them exceeds the dollar amount of scripts the doctor writes for the drug. How do I know? One of my patients was cut off her emergency headache medicine during a weekend. She's on a patient assistance program because the drug company had determined that, hey, that's it. We're no longer uh, ahead here. There's nothing I could do to get the patient assistance program to authorize the pharmacy to dispense the headache medicine. A major impetus for me to find non-drug solutions to headaches, which I did do and ultimately just stopped even using uh, 
any headache medicine at all for patients. So we have established that two of the main players in the medical industry do not work for free, even if the care is futile. Put more clearly, a doctor could not give futile care for free because the hospitals and drug companies would not work for free and the standard of care requires that the doctor use either a hospital or drug in the various protocols. So for this reason, a doctor can only provide futile care that's paid for. And for this reason, the doctor is not in the driver's seat. First thing is the doctor is not being paid for futile care. Okay. And again, let's be clear. This is a category of care delineated by the medical industrial complex itself. The second reason is that young doctors are trained to provide futile care. Yep. Doctors are trained to provide. Like I said, in medical school, we're trained to provide care that only has maybe a one in one million chance of helping a patient. And a third reason is that doctors are trained to look the other way when futile care is being provided. So it's one thing to do it yourself. And then to compound it, the doctors are also trained to look the other way when other doctors provide futile care. So why now? Why today? Why in 2016 do we have this big uh, article about futile care blaming doctors? Well, since the health industry is no longer demand-driven, that means the more you do, the more money you get, there's no longer pressure to provide care of any kind. In other words, people are compelled to pay insurance premiums, but there is no compulsion to deliver care of any kind. Co-pays and deductibles are in addition to the compulsory premiums. So the money to be gotten from the patient is up front, the deductible. The back-end gain by inflating the bill is non-existent since the hospital has to fight with the insurance company to get that money, always a losing game. Uh, the cost of the fight often does not even exceed the amount received from the, drug co- I mean, from the insurance company. So we're going to throw some numbers around here. So put on your thinking cap, get out your pencil and paper, follow me on this. And if you can't follow me, listen to the recording again, and I'll put some links also in the uh, chat room. Our chat room, by the way, is uh, drdaniels at chatango.com. All right, let me see. Give me that right link on that room. It's healingwithdrdaniels.chatango.com. So healingwithdrdaniels.chatango.com. Okay. So since the health industry, like I said, is no longer demand-driven, and uh, we're going to take a look at a person who's hospitalized. For the sake of simplicity, the bill is 100000 and the patient dies. Now, this is common because... Uh, Almost nobody survives $100,000 worth of medical care. That's just how dangerous it is. Sometimes a transplant patient will. But your general run-of-the-mill patient runs up the bill for $100,000. That's pretty much a corpse. So until now, there is no desire in any way to expose or minimize this type of care. And let's follow the math and see if we can't figure out why all of a sudden people or hospitals want to get rid of futile care. All right. So your average patient these days has a health insurance policy with a $5,000 deductible and a 20% copay. That means the hospital gets 30% of its profit from the first $10,000 of care given. The financial incentive for more care is minimal. In order to make $5,000 more, the hospital has to provide a full $25,000 of care. So the hospital is going to make $5,000 more, but they get the hazard, which is what? The insurance company may not pay its 80%, may not pay the $15,000. Or worse yet, the hospital may have to spend $21,000 in administrative costs to get $20,000 out of the insurance company. The best kept secret in all of medicine is that the patient is the easiest place to get money. I'll repeat that. The patient is the easiest way, the easiest source of money. Followed by, of course, uh, the insurance company is is pretty bad, but even worse than the insurance company is a government that you fail to bribe through lobbyists. 
So the hospitals that have a cozy relationship with the government, uh, they can get money easily from the government more easy, easier than, say, an insurance company. So let's take a look at this. The first $5,000 the hospital gets is gravy. That's because the patient has a $5,000 deductible. So the first $5,000, boom, patient pays the bill. Many hospitals are actually asking patients to put up this $5,000 deposit before they even check into the hospital. What about the second $5,000 the hospital gets? Well, in order to get a second uh, $5,000, the hospital has to provide an additional $25,000 of care to the patient. And there's no guarantee that the insurance company will pay, and the hospital may take years to get the money, if ever. So the second $5,000 the hospital gets by providing another $25,000 worth of care, 20% copay, so the patient pays 10%, which is $2,500, times 2 is $5,000. So in order to get $10,000 in cash, the hospital's got to provide $30,000 of care because the part the insurance company get is, is going to pay is not guaranteed. You can't count on it. So put another way, the hospital loses money on every service rendered past the deductible of $5,000. The deductible is paid at 100%, and every charge thereafter is subject to deep discounting. And so uh, we actually have a uh, site on the Internet, and it's uh, NewYorkDailyNews.com, opinion forward slash anatomy of a ripoff. <laughs> I lead you to deduce whatever you want from that title. And we talk about this deep uh, discounting, basically 87%. But let's go back to the numbers of our examples. So uh, $5,000 deductible, 20% copay. And so if the bill is $100,000, then the hospital is only going to get 24000 from the patient. Money so 24000 from the patient? I mean, who, who walks around with $24,000 in your hip pocket? <laughs> you may not know it, but you've got it. You're good for it. Because when you sign to the hospital, you sign a consent to treatment. But if you read the fine print, it's also a consent to unlimited liability. You have just pledged your house, your car, your savings, and maybe even your retirement fund to pay this hospital bill. So you're good for it. The hospital knows you're good for it. In fact, you check it out before they even admit you. And so what happens then, you end up paying 24000 of this. But let's take a look at the hospital. The hospital knows out of 100000 they're only going to get 24000 But they're getting, by giving 5% of the care, which is $5,000 worth of care, they're going to collect $5,000, which is one-fifth or 20% of the total amount they could collect. What contractor would come back to work for you if you gave them 20% of the job up front and 0% on completion? Well, in other words, to maximize profit, a hospital would stay as close to the patient's deductible as possible. In other words, admit 20 patients for $5,000, or 25 patients for $5,000 instead of one patient for 100000 the hospital's going to make a lot more money because it's going to collect that deductible either from your bank account, from a lien against your house, or uh, you know your car or whatever else you own. So one strategy to keep the bills as close to the patient's deductible as possible is to highlight and discourage futile care. The more expensive, less beneficial care that everyone knows is not needed. And that is what this article is designed to do. And so just like when I was training, the hospital basically turned out the lights on this patient. Yeah, the patient was in the hospital bed, but the patient, I think they did let her get food, but got no medications, um, no services of any kind, no testing, nothing. And, of course, she finally got the message and left the hospital. Um, this is what is... Uh, down the road to look forward to. Only this was a bit uh, awkward, of course, for the hospital to do this. And we doctors felt a little uncomfortable, you know, witnessing this. And so the purpose of articles like this is to get doctors to go along with the plan. 
to get doctors to uh, not write these orders, to get the doctor to discharge the patient early, uh, earlier in the uh, course of therapy. This particular patient had end-stage emphysema and had run up over a $100,000 bill, which, of course, neither she nor her insurance company had paid. And, of course, all the care was recommended by her doctor. And the hospital went along with it because they thought they were going to get paid. But as soon as they realized they weren't going to get paid, that was it. <laughs> and there was not, none too kind about it. So the only real money the hospital can count on, and they know it, is money from the patient. So the insurance company uses smoke and mirrors not uh, to pay the rest of the balance. And so this is how they do it. They have something called contractual allowances. It means the hospital signed a contract. And so even though the, the insurance company says, yes, we're going to pay the bill, because this contract, we only have to pay 13% of it. And, or uh, there's, there's uh, charges not allowed. The insurance company says, well, you know, we don't, we don't approve of this service. We don't think this service was necessary. We're just not going to allow it, which means we'll pay 0% of it, which, of course, is a real slap in the face because they were only paying 13% anyway. So when they disallow uh, a dollar of service, they're only saving 13 cents. And so, so the charge is not allowed. That means the service is not rendered. The insurance company might say, well, the patient never got that service. We don't think they got it. Or they'll say it was unnecessary or it's not covered. And so the insurance company won't pay it. And so the patient may or may not pay it. And this is the stage against which futile care now comes under scrutiny. It's difficult to get the patient to pay for hopeless, pointless, ineffective, useless, worthless, unneeded, valueless care, especially if he's experienced harm, as is the case for 25% of hospitalized patients. Or, heaven forbid, he was killed by his medical care, as is the case for 1% of patients admitted to the hospital. So this article is a psychological mind control piece to soften up the doctors so they will go along with what the hospitals are already doing. Going forward, hospitals need to be even more draconian and upfront about this. Um, and so in the uh, case that I gave, uh, $5,000 deductible, $18,000 copay, that's $23,000 for the patient to pay, $23,000, and um, $77,000 for the insurance company to pay. Well, if you have a contractual allowance of 87%, it means 87% the hospital does not have to pay. That means the hospital is taking a pretty big loss here. And um, out of $100,000, the hospital is only going to get, at best, $30,000 or $35,000. And so, obviously, would the hospital rather provide care at 100% collection rate, 50% collection rate, or 33% collection rate? So that's right. So what hospitals are going to start doing is literally cutting hospital bills down to 10000 or $15,000. In other words, cutting it down to the patient's deductible. Now, of course, there are scandals with hospitals inflating the bill uh, where basically uh, the patient pays $5,000 deductible for an amount of care that the insurance company might have had to pay, say, one or $2,000 for. That's for another show, though. So... As a manager of the hospital, it's quickly figured out that all hospital care should be capped at the patient's deductible. And this creates collections, I guess, at close to 100%. But reaching this lofty goal of cutting the insurance company out of the game will take time. And uh, they've got to get the doctors on board. So what does this mean? This means for you that your health insurance is beyond worthless. This indoctrination piece for your doctors it's designed to get doctors on board and reduce resistance when hospitals curtail the doctor's costly activities. If you understand that half of all medical knowledge is untrue, at the same time, it's taught just at the very point at which it's released. Another half is untrue every four years. You quickly understand that at least 85% of medical care is futile, hopeless, pointless, ineffective, useless, worthless, unneeded, and valueless. But guess what? Administrators of hospitals know this. So they have no compunction about halting medical care. The worst that could happen is the patient would be spared torture, mutilation, or death at the hands of the hospital personnel. So what this means for you is 
you should avoid medical insurance any way you can because you're going to end up paying the bill anyway. So even after you've paid all of your monthly insurance premiums, um, your insurance company has negotiated enough things with the hospital that it doesn't have to pay the bill. And now the hospital is gaming the system by lowering the amount of care given so it doesn't exceed your deductible. And so you have little to no chance of ever recovering your paid-in premiums. And federal regulations, by the way, only say that the insurance company has to spend 65% of the premium dollar on paying claims. This is a worse return than most, most casinos. The other trick, of course, is to pay cash for care that you receive. Never sign a blanket form of responsibility, personal responsibility. Once you're admitted to a hospital, the hospital prints up a plastic card with your billing information on it. Anyone, doctor, ward clerk, whatever, can charge any service to you. This is like a hotel room service where a waiter can swipe your credit card for the services provided, received by the last five people who ordered room service. Your financial liability is bottomless. And this you have no control over. When you're admitted to the hospital, any doctor, specialist walking by can just tag stuff onto your bill. Um, the ward clerk who is in a hurry and she's got all these different barcodes and she's got to get them all billed out to somebody, she can just throw them on your bill. So instead, you could sign a responsibility for a limited amount of money and then the hospital has to come back to you for approval of any amount in excess of that. Be prepared to sign out. That means leave the hospital if they exceed your budget. It could save your life. If you're going to go to a hospital, I would not advise that, but if you are, get a blanket commitment to a fixed price that you will be responsible for. Do this for the doctor as well as the hospital. A doctor will often take out an additional incidental healthy organ to inflate the bill. I know this happened to me. The best bet, though, is to definitely stay away. Uh, now, of course, I have a plan, a uh, Healers in Panama program that I have, which teaches you to be the 911 in your home so that you won't need to dial 911. You can be 911. And that's the other thing to have. Have a plan. Know what to do to handle the emergencies most likely to happen in your home. And obviously, people of different uh, ages, like children, have different emergency possibilities than people of other ages, like 50 or 60 years old. So that URL is vitalitycapsules.com forward slash healers dash in dash Panama dash testimonials. You'll find out what other people said who actually came to Panama and learned how to be the healer in their home. All right. We have got a lot of stuff going on in the chat room. It is time for question answers. We have 13 minutes left, just by the way. So take home message here is that yes, there's feudal care, <laughs> more than you know. And if the medical industrial complex ever stopped giving feudal care, they would be out of business because so much of the care given is feudal and the profit margin is only 5%. So uh, what's going on here is not the desire to eliminate feudal care, but the desire to get control over profit margins and masquerading as futile care. And of course, the hospital We'll tell the doctor when the care is futile. All right. (laughs) Dr. Daniels, what do you do for headaches besides water and bowel movements? You've got to remove the triggers. Dairy products, cheese, coffee, uh, all of these things cause headaches. And you can kind of put in cigarettes and alcohol. How does this work? Uh, While the person is... Uh, imbibing all these things, they're usually okay. But if a person misses their coffee or doesn't drink as much coffee, boom, headache. And so a person who has headaches should taper themselves off their coffee so that they don't get these horrific, horrific headaches. Uh, People who uh, drink dairy or eat cheese, just uh, quit it, stop it. And um, that's the preventative side. But once you actually get the headache, um, you can drink water. And I I don't know about bowel movements, but I would actually say do an enema. If it's one of these crushing, you know, I've got a migraine headache, I can't take it anymore, then definitely, um, you know, do an enema. 
Now, the treatment for migraines uh, at the turn of the century and all up until uh, the 70s, because as I, was, as I entered medical school in 79, they were saying, oh, this is stupid, was suppositories. And so they literally give the person a suppository. The person had a bowel movement, and boom, the headache is gone. And so, of course, they blamed it on the alkaloid in the suppository, but actually it was just that the person even had a bowel movement at all. Yeah. So um, that's it. Okay. <laughs> Dr. Daniel, are, bankrupt, are medical bills a large cause of bankruptcy? Absolutely. And I've done actually several radio shows on this. Um, the reason medical bills cause bankruptcies is because people sign into the hospital, sign this blank check, having no idea that they could be creating a bill for a $50,000, $100,000, $200,000. Many people, if they, at the time they walked in the hospital, the hospital said, this is a blank check, and we could fill in the value of $200,000 signed here. Most people would, one, refuse to sign, and two, they'd go right back home. And so this is why people... Uh, go bankrupt over medical bills because they are not presented with the cost of their therapy prior to therapy. And that's the problem. It has nothing to do with it being health or not health. But what it has to do with is um, people signing an open-ended, unlimited commitment without realizing that that is what they're um, signing. Okay. Okay. Second is, I've noticed when I have serious headaches that after several good bowel movements, the headaches are greatly diminished and usually gone. Yep, that's true. That is the case. Is this the case? If this is true, how could most headaches be caused by dehydration? The dehydration causes both the constipation and the increased toxin concentration. So it causes the constipation, holding the toxins in, and it super concentrates the toxins. And this is why sometimes just drinking water um, alone will get rid of them. Okay. The <laughs> futile, um, Dr. Daniel, is the futile standard of care a hazard gone wild, pretty much. And there's no um, indication that it's going to be tamed anytime soon. In other words, the standard of care is getting more and more ensconced, even legally. And it's being enforced with, uh, with a vengeance. And so doctors now are losing malpractice suits just because they deviated from the standard of care, even though no harm was done to the patient. Um, courts are awarding judgments just the deviation from the standard of care. And people like to blame, oh, it's those uh, liability lawyers. Oh, it's these greedy patients. No. The system sets the whole thing up to happen and these payouts and the criteria. And this is a way to intimidate doctors into sticking with a standard of care that they know to be dangerous and deadly. So a doctor is saying, well, geez, if I give the standard of care, the patient dies, and, I'm not, and I won't be blamed. If I don't give the standard of care, the patient lives, and I get blamed. And so um, what most doctors decide is that they're going to give the standard of care, allow the patient to die, and that way they don't get blamed. And their job is secure and everything's okay. However, uh, you know, that, that's a deadly, deadly solution. And this is why it's making medicine even more dangerous all the time. Okay, everyone says, Doctor, I'm so happy I can hear you today. You're welcome. Of course, I have no control over the broadcast quality, unfortunately. Okay. All right, that's it for our, sh- our questions in the chat box. Let's see if there are any questions online. Okay, all right, no questions online. Okay, so the important thing to understand is that this uh, discussion of futile care, first of all, this discussion is, is occurring 
on what uh, lay people might refer to as a forum, although doctors aren't allowed to respond. We just got to receive information. And the reason this futile care is being discussed with doctors, not so much with patients, is, again, because the drug companies and hospitals and insurance companies control the doctors, then this concept of futile care allows the doctor to be more flexible in obeying the rules and laws. So you can say to a doctor, hey, that care is futile. And he'll say, oh, okay, okay, I won't do it, I won't do it. And so depending on the setting, whether it's the office setting, uh, in which case the insurance company will put pressure on them, or the hospital setting, in which case the hospital will put pressure on them, um, it allows them maximal control because the doctor is open to the concept and accepting the concept that what he's doing is, of course, uh, futile. And the patients, uh, the, the situation of the place that they occupy, of course, is one of total obedience and ignorance. And so the patients are never told, hey, this care is futile because what's going to happen? Well, maybe one patient will go online and say, hey, you know, XYZ procedure, maybe knee arthroscopy, for example, is totally futile and useless. Don't anybody get it? And then that could, of course, have a global effect on uh, profits. So that is not uh, what you want. Definitely don't want uh, the victims to become aware of this. Because, again, research has been done showing that if a patient is aware that the care they're being offered is futile, at least 65% will refuse the therapy. And in refusing the therapy, 65% refusing, uh, that would just basically shut down the um, shut down the hospital. And next week, we have got an awesome show for you. Oh, awesome. This next show is literally the capstone to at least 20 episodes. I am reviewing the book, When Breath Becomes Air, by Paul Kalanis. And this guy, the doctor, uh, he's deceased, unfortunately. Excellent, excellent writer, excellent book. But I beseech you to tune in next week, as of course, think happens. Because what we're going to see is the journey of a doctor, um, not only through his life, but through his illness, through his role as a physician, and through his role as a patient, and, uh, and what happened. And I think that uh, people need to understand that they're not going to be treated any better than this guy was. But thank God for his uh, disposition and perspective. He endured it all with great, uh, great grace. Okay, so we have about three minutes left to go. Let me give you that website again, which is vitalitycapsules.com forward slash healers dash in dash Panama dash testimonials. Never be in doubt again. Be the 911 in your home so you don't have to dial 911. Yep, in the old days, mom and dad handled all the health care. But unfortunately, there's been a breach in the passage of knowledge and information due to compulsory schooling, but we are going to fix that. And if you have insurance, at least you won't have to use it. And be scammed. <laughs> okay, we have one quick question here. If I'm in a mental hospital, can I request non-feudal care? Non-feudal care. No, you cannot. So if you're in a hospital, you cannot request care of any kind. It's not your job. The doctor requests the care on your behalf. And so that is a problem. Uh, no, you may not suggest. You may not do that. It's just simply not allowed. All right, that is it. We'll see you next week. And as always, think.
With lucky landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.